0: When I was little, I think my general understanding of a calendar involved looking ahead to four days. My birthday, the last day of school, Christmas, and Easter. And I'm sure it comes to little surprise that my anticipation of those holidays revolved mostly around family, food, and gifts. Now, none of those things are terrible, but I definitely, if you work in marketing, would be described as uh, probably a, a good example of marketing success. I was a kid thinking and dreaming about what sort of things I might find waiting for me in my stocking or underneath the Christmas tree. Later in life, probably post-college and even into the early years of marriage, I went through a bit more of a curmudgeon stage. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I was a Christmas Grinch. But I scoffed at the idea of Christmas decorations going up immediately following Halloween, and you certainly wouldn't catch me listening to Christmas music anytime remotely close to Thanksgiving. Definitely not before, and probably not even until mid-December. But more recently, I have to say that I'm beginning to find myself gravitating closer to my childhood anticipation of the season. It might have something to do with getting to experience the season with a kid of my own, seeing his eyes open to the season as he starts to get a little bit older. Maybe it's simply a coping mechanism that I've developed for the fact that winter seems to arrive just a little bit earlier here than it did when I grew up in Chicago. But in reality, I think I've just come to grow in my appreciation for the hope of the Christmas story. It's a story that we here at City Church believe to be true, and we believe it to be something that our world desperately needs. This morning marks the ending of the traditional church calendar year. The church calendar is set up in a way that tells the complete story of Jesus over the course of the year. It starts with Advent leading up to his birth. It covers his ministry of healing and teaching. It tells us of his death and resurrection. And then over the course of the remainder of the year, it cycles through texts from the Psalms, the Old Testament prophets, readings from the biographies of Jesus, and readings from the letters of the Apostle Paul. Today is the last Sunday of the church year. It's Christ the King Sunday. And Christ the King Sunday focuses our worship on the character of Christ's reign over the world. The day is celebrated widely in some traditions. It's normally scheduled on the last Sunday before Advent, and it therefore serves as a traditional Sunday, leading us into Advent, the Christmas cycle, and the new Christian year. The day fits well with the eschatological emphasis and anticipation of Christ's second coming, which is highlighted during Advent. It also helps us, as we begin to be thinking about Christmas, to remember that Christmas is about much more than simply a baby in a manger. It's about a sovereign God who came to the earth to be the Prince of Peace. White is the customary color for Christ the King Sunday. So you may have noticed the color on the fabric on the platform behind me has changed from the green of ordinary time to white. Next week, it will be changed to blue as we officially enter into the season of Advent in preparation for Christmas. Now, while we are not a church that relies on the historical church calendar for our teaching schedule, we do on occasion plan our sermon series around a couple of key moments in the church calendar. The season of Lent, which leads us up to Easter, as well as Advent in preparation of Christmas. See, Advent is a time to celebrate both the past... And the future, We remember when Jesus came into this world over 2,000 years ago, born as a baby, fully human and also fully God. But we also anticipate his return, will he, he will come again. Advent helps us to remember and celebrate the good news that we find in John 3, 16 and 17 that says, this is how God loved the world. That he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. See, in the birth of Jesus, God declares that you and I are worth something significant to him. That God loves you and me so much that he was willing to take on human flesh to come to the earth that he created so that he could save us from our sin. He came to rescue us, and when we place our trust in Jesus, we are offered that redemption. And so Advent reminds us that Christ has come and that he is coming again. Woven through the pages of the Old Testament is the prophetic promise that the Messiah would come, that his Advent would take place. In the Old Testament, there are about 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the great proofs of the deity of Jesus Christ. God began to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus with a multitude of prophecies in the Old Testament concerning him. And so there can be no mistake to us today that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The text that we're looking at today was written by the prophet Isaiah more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And so it seems appropriate that as we think about entering into the season of Advent, that we do so from the Old Testament perspective of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. Our Advent series for this year is titled Journey to Bethlehem, and in it we're going to take a chronological approach of the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. Most recently, we've been in a study on the prophet uh, Jeremiah, and in January, Pastor John will close out that series by highlighting themes from the writings and the life of that prophet that points us to Jesus. I think it'll serve as a nice bookend to that series as well as this Advent series, So we've been in Jeremiah, and this morning we're going to rewind the clock just a little bit more, taking a look at the writings from Isaiah. To give you an idea of Isaiah's context in comparison to Jeremiah, um, Lee, our graphic designer communications uh, director, has put together this uh, timeline as a visual to help us um, put this in order. Chapter 6 of Isaiah tells us that his prophetic ministry began in the year that King Uzziah died. This would have been somewhere around 740 BC, which is approximately 100 years before Jeremiah is called by God into his ministry. While 100 years is certainly a long time and a lot can happen in that time, and certainly you can see that some significant things did happen. But from historical references aside, it would be easy to read the two books side by side and assume based on thematic content that these books were written at the same time. Like Jeremiah, Isaiah calls the people to repent, to trust in God for their redemption. There will be a warning of the coming judgment and destruction, but a continual promise that God will be faithful to redeem his people despite their continued rebellion. So this morning, we're going to take a look at some of the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah and see how they point us to the arrival of Jesus. We'll begin in Isaiah chapter 7, and let me first give you a little bit of background to put the verses that we're going to consider into context. Isaiah is speaking to the king of Judah, King Ahaz. Ahaz was a man who was evil in a lot of ways. He sacrificed his own children to false gods. Twisted, evil, sick, all of these are good words to describe the type of person that Ahaz was. Now this conversation that we're going to look at happens probably somewhere between 732 and 725 B.C., as this occurs a little before the fall of Israel that happens in 722. The Assyrian Empire was steadily increasing its influence and power in the nations of that region, and they were scared about what might happen to them. Syria and Israel wanted to form a coalition with Judah to oppose the growing power of the Assyrians. They made a proposition to King Ahaz, but King Ahaz wasn't quite sure what to do. So because of his hesitation, Syria and Israel turned against him. They decided that they wanted him out of power. They wanted to dethrone him and put another king in control of Judah so that they could have their coalition and have their way. King Ahaz, hearing that Syria and Israel had turned against him, was scared. And so Isaiah the prophet was sent to the king to calm his nerves and to give him a message of comfort. And we read that message in chapter 7 of Isaiah in verses 10 through 14. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you the house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Isaiah said to Ahaz, trust in God. Give everything into his hands and you will be all right. God will look after you. He will take care of you. Isaiah commanded Ahaz to test God, to ask God to prove this message was from him by asking God to confirm it with a sign. But Ahaz in his pride and stubbornness refused and went his own way. Ahaz trusted in his own wisdom, and he decided that it would be better to use men. Ahaz made a treaty with another nation. He made a covenant with the enemy, the king of Assyria. So instead of uniting with Syria and Israel, Ahaz sided with the enemy. But things didn't go as he had hoped. The king of Assyria broke the treaty, and Ahaz ended up in a far worse situation than he had started. Ahaz turned his back on God, even though he had already been told by God that despite his stubbornness, despite his pride, God would send the sign of his own choosing. The sign would be a baby. A child would be conceived. A miracle child would be born of a virgin and would be called Emmanuel. Simply put, the word Emmanuel means God with us. The theologian and hymnist Charles Wesley put it, our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. Emmanuel, the baby, was named even before his birth. God with us. So Ahaz refused to listen to the voice of God. Yet God did not withdraw his promise because of the king's unfaithfulness. God was faithful to the remnant of those people in the nation of Judah, God said, I am going to send this baby regardless of whether Ahaz trusts me or fails me. This child will be born. A virgin will conceive and his name will be Emmanuel. This name, Emmanuel, is found three times in the Bible. It's found here in Isaiah chapter seven. It's found again in Isaiah chapter eight, verse eight. And it's found again in Matthew chapter one, verse 23 in Matthew's account of the Christmas story where Matthew writes, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Emmanuel, the only time this name is mentioned in the New Testament is mentioned in regards to the coming of Christ. And so this meaning God with us tells us that God is not just looking after us, that God doesn't just have his hand on us and his care for us, But God, within the birth of this child, his very presence has come to dwell with us. The second spot in Isaiah that we're going to take a look at this morning is Isaiah chapter 9. If you're familiar with the classical piece Handel's Messiah, you would certainly find this text familiar. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. These two verses give us a peek into the characteristics of the Messiah that Isaiah is writing about and his mission. Verse six tells us who he is. Names in the Bible are extremely important. In the Bible, a name not only conveys who you are, but it says something about your character. So let's try to understand what they might have meant in the context of Isaiah's day and what they mean for us today as Christ followers. In Isaiah's prophecy, he gives the coming king four important names, which I want to look at in turn. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor means supernatural and extraordinary counselor. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy because we can look to his life, his teaching, His miracles, his love, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, and his sacrifice for us on the cross. Jesus is the wonderful counselor that Isaiah prophesied about. He is calling this coming king wonderful counselor, and he is making it clear that he is powerful, mighty, and glorious, and a doer of great miracles and our guide. He is so beyond our level of comprehension that we can never quite fully figure him out, and yet he can be known with the faith of a little child. He is wonderful in his words, his works, and his ways. And it refers to his role as the leader and guiding force of our lives. You might ask, why do we need Christ's counsel? But it's because our hearts are selfish and sinful. One of the key duties of a king was to give counsel and direction to his people. The role of a counselor is to impart wisdom and experience in order to help lead people from darkness and confusion into light and order, out of danger and into safety. This is what Jesus does for us. This is why he is the wonderful counselor. He brings light into our darkness and guides and directs us into righteousness. In the biography of Jesus that John writes, in chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus promised his disciples that he would send to them the Holy Spirit. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. And further, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So when speaking of the coming king, Isaiah said that the spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, the spirit of counsel and of power. Later on in the book, Isaiah explicitly says that these are characteristics of God Himself. Mighty God means all powerful. It refers to the one who is strong, mighty, and invincible. He alone is worthy to be our hero, for He has defeated all of our enemies. He defeated death, He defeated sin, He defeated Satan. He is the almighty God. John chapter one tells us all things were created by him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And since he is God, he deserves our absolute reverence. He deserves our genuine faith. He deserves our supreme love, our unconditional obedience, our consecrated service and our worship. He is the everlasting father. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God is eternal, and therefore all that he provides extends into eternity. God is eternal, therefore his promises endure for all generations. God is eternal, therefore his purposes for creation remain everlasting. God made us for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He also set eternity in the hearts of men. God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Humanity, on the other hand, has a beginning but no end we will live forever, forever, either with God or apart from God. God created us for eternity and Jesus came to earth to reveal how we can live with God forever. Jesus reveals eternity to us. When Jesus Christ was born, he brought together time and eternity into one. He is perfect humanity, undiminished deity, united in one body forever. Now uh, You might be wondering how this name fits with the doctrine of the Trinity. If God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then how can Jesus be called the Everlasting Father? Our answer comes in a proper understanding of the Hebrew word for father. The Old Testament Jewish reader reading Isaiah 9, 6-7 through 7 would understand that the use of the word father would mean originator of or author of. So when the people, so when the prophet Isaiah uses this term, everlasting father, he is meaning the father of that which is everlasting, the father of that which is eternal. So we see that Jesus Christ is the father, the originator of eternity. He is everlasting. The fourth name given to the Lord Jesus is Prince of Peace. Peace can mean different things to different people. This would not be the case for the Old Testament Jewish reader. To him, the word peace or shalom meant far more than silence or absence of conflict. They would view peace as a living, vibrant thing made for thriving and the well-being of humanity. True peace doesn't have to do with the situation on the outside, but it has to do with the condition on the inside. A person can be at peace no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstances are. And this is possible because Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace and he will rule his kingdom in peace. So verse 6 gives us these characteristics and verse 7 reminds us of his mission. See, Jesus was God in human flesh. We know that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that God stepped out of eternity and entered into time. We know that Jesus was a great teacher, a healer, and miracle worker, that Jesus came to the earth to die for our sins on the cross. We know that he rose again from the dead and ascended back to heaven to make intercession for his people and to prepare a place for us there. We know that all justice, peace, and perfect judgment have not been delivered to this earth but that those things are coming. That is his mission. When Jesus comes to rule the earth as king, the world will be dominated by his peace, by his justice and his perfect judgment. That is the world that Christ will create when he returns. When he comes, the curse of sin will be removed from the world. When he comes, the world will be restored to the beauty and glory of the original creation. When he comes, Jesus will give the world everything it would have had if sin had not entered in. Isaiah expresses Advent's hope. And so Advent is a good time to remember that Jesus, as he promised, is coming again to bring those things. This Advent, the invitation to you is not to run from your humble estate or your feelings of insignificance, but instead to lean into it. To lean into your life and to know that God looks upon the humble and invites them into his great story. Lean into your ordinary life and find a God who sees you. In the end, Christmas is about the incarnation. God, seeing humanity, seeing us and becoming one of us. God, the creator of all things, present and eternal, dissolved into obscurity over 2,000 years ago so that we might know our significance. With all this, we are called to remember, not for the sake of simply remembering, but to enter into his story. Let us pray. Mighty and tender God, voice of the voiceless, power of the powerless, we praise you for your vision of a community of wholeness, a realm of peace in which all hunger and thirst are nourished, in which the stranger is welcomed, the hurting are healed, and the captive is set free. Guide us by your truth and love until we and all your people make manifest your reign of justice and compassion. We pray in the name of your anointed one, our servant king, to whom with you and the spirit, one holy God, be honor, glory, and blessing this day and forever. Amen.